We're going to be looking in uh, the book of 1 John chapter 2 and invite you all to stand this morning as we reverence the reading of God's word. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 12. <clears throat> Children, fathers, and young men. It's the name of our message today. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> Children, fathers, and young men, our message for this morning and uh, for next week uh, will consider the subject of spiritual maturity, growing in grace, as we commonly call it. Uh, as you can see it, uh, in our passage, it begins uh, with the subject of children, then with young men, uh, and then with fathers. Uh, the Apostle John was writing this. By the time of this writing, he was the last living apostle. Uh, he's lived his life. He served Jesus well. But now he picks up his inspired pen, and he is writing with a very specific purpose in mind, this whole book is crafted uh, underneath this uh, basic concept, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Uh, John says then, he is writing to those who have believed on Jesus Christ. So he's writing to people who are saved. Now, we are saved when we come to the knowledge of ourselves as sinners, first of all, and the fact that we need to be saved. Uh, I listened again this week, was blessed all over again by the testimony of Chris Christofferson as he talked about the writing of the song, Why Me, Lord, one of his biggest hits. And uh, he talked about how that he went to church one day, wasn't planning to go to church, someone took him there. And as he got there, uh, though, he sat through the sermon, and they gave an altar call. He said, I didn't intend to go up, but I did. And uh, I didn't intend to pray, but I did. And, and he said this, and this is what stood out to me. He said, I felt this forgiveness that I didn't even know I needed. And he actually put that in the song uh, because he said, now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. That's Chris. I felt forgiveness I didn't even know I needed. I mention that to you this morning because the first thing that has to happen for us to be saved is to understand that we need to be saved. That we are sinners. We're sinners by nature and sinners by choice. Admitting that doesn't mean that we're the worst person that's ever lived or, or that we're as bad even as we could be. Uh, but it does mean that we have sinned. And that makes us sinners. And in order for us to be saved and go to heaven to be with God forever, then we have to acknowledge that. We have to admit that. I try to say it often and clearly because what I'm talking about is the gospel, and it is identified for us this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 1. Uh, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, 
if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the, the Gospel is clearly identified for us. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. This is what we call the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. We've all sinned. And the wages of that sin is death. But Jesus, as the sinless substitute, went to the cross and died for your sins and for mine. I once heard one of those Hollywood talking types, uh, professional talkers, uh, mock the gospel by saying, if God is so great, why did he send his son to die? I wouldn't send my son to die. I'd do it myself. That's what he said, mocking the gospel. But he was completely ignorant of what the Bible actually teaches. And, and listen, ignorance is not a slur. That just means they're uninformed. They don't know. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ. There it is. Reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Never forget, it was God, God the Son, that was nailed to the cross. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. But so the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. But of course it doesn't stop there. He was buried and rose again. Now, Paul was writing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at least in part, because the church at Corinth was struggling with the belief in the resurrection. They were denying that anybody could ever rise again from the dead, and so, in essence, they were denying the gospel. That's why he put that phrase in there, unless you have believed in vain. Because if they were denying the resurrection, you see, they were actually believing that Jesus had died and was buried, and he was just dead. And if you believe that about Jesus, or if they believe that about Jesus, that meant that Jesus was no different than Moses or Elisha or any other great prophet of the Old Testament who had preached and taught and worked miracles and died and was buried. They were great men, but they couldn't save anybody. The resurrection was a crucial part of the gospel. And so by the fact that they were denying there was a resurrection, Paul was concerned that maybe their belief was in vain. That means it was empty, worthless. Why? Because they believed in a false gospel. A false gospel is a dangerous thing. That's why he said in Galatians chapter 1, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Don't preach, he says, any other gospel. Why? Because people might believe it, but no other gospel has the power to save you. It is only the true power of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Galatians had come under the influence of these false teachers who had tried to add the keeping of the law and, and being circumcised to the gospel. You can be uh, believe the gospel, believe in Jesus, that's good, but then you have to be circumcised, keep the law, and do all of these other things in order to be sure you're going to heaven when you die. They had perverted the gospel. 
And it was not a gospel at all. In today's world, the most popular false gospel is the one that leaves sin out of the equation altogether. It's very popular in America today. That's why I wanted you to understand this morning that it's only when we come to the awareness of our sin that we understand that we need a Savior. The true gospel tells us Christ died for our sins. And if the Holy Spirit is not convicting us of our sinfulness and causing us then to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, then we may very well be believing a false gospel. And the problem with it is that it vaccinates people against the real thing. You know, a vaccine is made up of dead virus and they inject it in your system so that your body builds up antibodies to that virus. It inoculates you against catching the real thing because you've been inoculated, inoculated uh, vaccinated with a dead thing. A lot of people, I'm afraid, are vaccinated with a dead gospel. And they look back then on some experience that they had. Oh, yeah, I'm okay. Maybe they're not. This entire epistle, though, was written to those who have truly believed on Jesus Christ because they understood that they were sinners, that Jesus died for them. He was buried, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again for our justification. And so since we moved around a bit, I want us to go back and look at this epistle, why John says he's writing this. I wanted to make sure that we understand what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, I've been hearing that all my life. Well, you just heard it again. You hang around here much, you're going to hear it again. Because I never know when somebody's going to walk in that door who's never heard it before. And if you all have to hear it 100,000 times for that one person to hear it for the first time, then that's good. I'm okay with that. That's fine. So I want to make sure that you understand what it means to believe on the name of the Son of God. And then he says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. Now, be pretty sure. I want you to know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And he said, well, wait a minute. I thought he had just told us we'd already believed on the name of the Son of God. Yes, but he wants you to know that you have eternal life. And I want you to know this morning that the only way that you can know for sure that you have eternal life is the same way that you got eternal life in the first place. If you're saved today, you're saved because you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that you're still saved? Same way. I still believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If I ever stop believing, then I'm going to start doubting. You understand? How can we have confidence? Because Jesus promised me that whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have believed on him. I've asked him to be my Savior. I know then that I have eternal life. Why? Because Jesus keeps his promises. I believe. He wants us to keep believing on the Son of God. God wants us, you see, to be sure of our salvation. He doesn't want our faith to be a question mark. But an exclamation point, I know whom I have believed. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is by faith. The assurance of our salvation is not by works. The assurance of our salvation is by faith. So whole book is written so that we could have confidence, assurance 
in our salvation. I hope you got that this morning. If you don't, please, please, let's have a talk before you leave. Not that I can give you something you don't have, but I can point you to the one who can give you the assurance of your salvation. Well, what if I mess up? Well, John tells us what to do about that too. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. By little children, he goes on chapter 2, These things write unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation, that is the one who pays the price for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We claim that promise. Even when we mess up, God is faithful and just to forgive us because Jesus has paid the price for our sins. So, understand that, that this is what John's writing us about. Then we can understand how this whole subject of growing as a Christian would fit into that. See, the way that we have the true assurance of our faith is that if we, we keep growing and maturing and moving forward. And in order to illustrate this, he used the figure of a, of a human man, a male. He talked about a little child and then a young man and a father. It could have just as easily been a human female. Uh, he speaks of a, a child then, of an adolescent. Don't you love those? And, of course we love those. And a parent, the natural progression of humanity. You're a child, then you go through puberty, you're an adolescent, then you're an adult, and you are giving life to other people. You're a parent. Uh, now, as much as we enjoy the movies about Peter Pan, and it is one of my favorite movies, Hook, by the way, who stays a child forever, uh, we know that growing up is an important part of life. Uh, we don't necessarily have to forget about being a child. That comes in handy. Uh, the best parents, they say, are those who remember their childhood and can still get down and play with their kids. But there comes a time where you have to realize that your kids don't need another playmate. They need a parent. So we have to grow up and be the parents. Maturity is important in the physical realm, but it's also important in the spiritual realm. And John is presenting to us then how that we are to grow in our spiritual life, our growth as a believer. Now, uh, since I, I had such a long runway on this sermon today and I had to go through all those things, making sure about being saved, and I don't apologize for that because I love preaching the gospel and like I say, we never know when somebody's here that really, really needs to hear that. And all of us need to be reminded of it. Uh, but I'm only going get to get to really one of these, the first one, and that has to do with being a child, a spiritual child. John says, I write unto you little children. Why? Because your sins are forgiven you for your namesake. Then later on, he returns to the little children again in the passage, and he says, I write unto you because you have known the Father. Children are great. I love kids. I love them. I have to admit there are times when they get on my nerves, but I love kids. I can't hang with them like I once did, but I 
love kids. I do. There was a time when I thought that a perfect church would be a church where everybody was fully mature and completely well-adjusted and everybody knew how to act and they all treated each other well and treated their pastor well. I, I really thought that a church would be full, a perfect church would be full of mature people, but I figured out that that's not the truth. A church full of mature believers would not be a great church at all. It's a dying church. you got to have children around. <laughs> if you're reaching people for Christ, then you're going to have some spiritual children around. And, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, that is a wonderful thing. What is a spiritual child? Well, John tells us all they know is that their sins are forgiven, and they know God's their father, and they're a child of God. And they just rejoice in that. They don't know a lot of Bible, but they know their sins are forgiven. They don't know much about the doctrines of the Christianity, but they know their sins are forgiven and that God is their Father. That's all they know. And John calls them a, a child, a little child. But now, as much as we love little children, they are not without their faults. You know, children are rude. They will burp right in your face. And they'll erp right in your face and do other things. They don't apologize for it. They never say, excuse me, or say, I'm sorry. Not a bit. In fact, they'll do all sorts of things, and uh, not only will they not say, I'm sorry, but they'll grin and laugh about it. They're proud of what they did. Little kids can be mean. I tell you what, you put a bunch of kids together and you're just liable to see one of them walk up to another one and bite a plug out of them for no reason. I mean, just bite the fire out of them. They're mean. They can be. They'll hit each other. Kids will lie. Little children will lie. We had a couple of them, our grandkids over at our house. You know, our grandkids are mostly perfect, but they'll still lie. And one of them was in a diaper, one of them was not, and we began to smell what you smell in a diaper. And Nancy asked him, did you do that? And he pointed his finger at his brother and said, no, he did. <laughs> How do they learn that stuff? You'll never find a video series anywhere to teach your kid how to bite. How to bite in three easy steps. You don't teach them that. You don't teach them how to hit. You don't teach them how, not a video series around. I'm gonna, here's how to teach your kids to be selfish and not share. Here's how to teach your kids. To, nobody does that stuff. Where's it come from? Well, David said, I was shaping in iniquity and in sin did my mother uh, conceive me. There's that doctrine that we know of in Scripture about total hereditary depravity, and that means we are born with a sin nature. You don't have to teach them how to sin. You have to teach them not to sin. You have to teach them not to bite. You have to teach them not to lie. You have to teach them not to be selfish. You have to teach them not to hit others. You have to teach them. Newborn believers really are not that different. Look at what Simon Peter says in this great passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice 
and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, quite a list. As newborn babes, he said, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now don't confuse this passage and try to tie it together with another one. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, he said, I have things to teach you that I can't teach you. I have fed you with milk and I can't feed you with meat. And in that case, milk was presented as a bad thing. They should have grown past that, but they had not. That is not the meaning that Simon Peter has in this passage. He says that we need to treat the Word of God, the, all of the Word of God, like a newborn baby uh, treats that milk that he so desperately, or she so desperately needs. It is life to them. It is their growth. It's all they can get. And that's what we need. We need to have that same kind of feeling toward the Word of God. He calls on us then to turn away, to lay aside, to turn away from some other things. Guile is bitterness. You show me a bitter believer, I'll show you a newborn Christian or someone who's acting like a newborn Christian. Hypocrisy, we know all too well. That's putting on a show that isn't real, a Christian on Sunday morning, but going into stealth mode all week, and that's a newborn characteristic. Malice refers to a seething hostility, harboring anger and unforgiveness against others. That is a newborn characteristic. Jealousy is another one. It's usually paired with the next thing, evil speaking. Evil speaking is that person who out of jealousy of others is, is probably criticizing, constantly putting down, constantly negative about anything anybody else does. That's a newborn characteristic. Well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want any part of it. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. That's what a child Christian is. Simon Peter, you see, realized that there would be some things that we would struggle with, some things that as a believer in Christ, that we've tasted that the Lord is gracious, we've experienced the grace of God, but this is new to us. What we need as a newborn is to desire the sincere milk of the Word, but there's some other things that we can hang on to that will stunt your growth. Anybody ever tell you coffee would stunt your growth? That's not the truth. <laughs> I'm, I'm living proof of that. Uh, coffee will not stunt your growth. Won't do it. But there's a lot of things that will stunt our spiritual growth. Malice, guile, hypocrisies, envies, or jealousy, evil speaking. Yeah. Let's understand that spiritual growth is not about how long you've been saved. You may have been saved for a long time and yet never have really grown in your faith. That doesn't mean that you're not saved. You're still saved. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He loves you. He sure does. John chapter 13 and verse 1, God, John said that having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And at that time, they were being a bunch of selfish, <laughs> hard-headed people. Not getting along well. And yet Jesus still loved them. 
So even though you haven't grown, I want you to know God still loves you. Your church still loves you. Uh, I still love you. Your pastor still loves you, uh, even if you haven't grown. But just the fact that you've been saved for a long, long time doesn't necessarily mean that you've really grown out of the stage. We need the Word of God. We need to learn it, know it, feed on it, because that is how we move forward in our faith. Now, a person who's a spiritual child is, is still a spiritual child. They're still saved. God still loves them. A church family still loves them. But it does mean that something has happened along the way that you didn't grow the way you should. Being a spiritual child or lapsing into spiritual childhood can happen to anybody. Uh, we're not immune from childish behavior. But growing comes as we learn what is wrong and what's right, what we need to turn away from, not having that, and what we need to feast on, which is the Word of God. Spiritual childishness is difficult for us to self-diagnose. I never remember anybody. I've been pastor now for over 40 years. And in all of my 40 years of ministry, I've had never had one single person come up to me and say, Brother Rich, I've been pray I want you to pray for me because I have been acting like a spiritual baby. Not one. Not in 40 years. And I can guarantee you if somebody comes to me with a problem and I respond to them by saying, you're just a big old baby and you need to grow up, that's not going to go over very well. I guarantee you, I'd never say that. I've, I've never said that. I've thought it. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I've thought it. I've known it's true. It's possible for a church, even for us, to settle down with a ministry that comes together every Sunday to celebrate our sins are forgiven and that God loves me as his child and will never stop loving me. To be a church that never challenges people to grow in the word, no preaching that moves beyond that, to call people to know, to do what God tells us to do, but just celebrate our spiritual condition. I'm saved and, and God's my father and I'm going to heaven. It's easy then to check that off your list. Yep, got that. I've been saved. Check. God's my father. Yep, going to heaven when I die. Yep. Now I got things to do, money to make. I want this church to be dedicated to calling you to the sincere milk of the Word of God so that you can grow. Not the sincere milk of me and my experience and my stories and my ideas about how you ought to live. That's why I put so much Bible in my sermons because I want you to know I'm not making this stuff up. Because when I'm preaching to you the Word of God, I can stand on the authority of the Word of God. Do you understand what I mean? If it's just my opinion or my ideas, that's, that my opinion or my ideas is not any different from anybody else's opinion or anybody else's ideas. What matters is what is in the Word of God. That's why the Bible tells me, preach the Word. Preach the Word. I try to do that. We need the sincere, unfeigned, undiluted Word of God. 
I want to wrap up this morning with a couple of things to remind you of. Time, remember, is no guarantee of spiritual growth. And that's a fact. You may have been saved for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, but that's no guarantee that you have ever grown. And you may have to look at yourself and you say, you say after 40 years or 30 years or 20 years as a believer, I, I really don't know much more about the Bible than I did when I received Christ as my Savior. Time is no guarantee that you have grown in your faith. But while that is true, it is also true that time is no barrier to spiritual growth. That's my way of telling you. It's not too late, guys and girls. It's not too late. Wherever you are this morning, God knows where you are. God still loves you. God's still God. He saved you 40 years ago. He's still your Savior today. You were saved then, you're saved now. Yes, you're going to heaven when you die. Praise God. I'm thankful for that. But God wants you to grow. He knows right where you are. And no matter where you are, you can move forward. Time, time. You say, I'm too old. No, you're not. No, you're not. Learning the Bible is not like algebra. I took Algebra 1 and 2 in high school and probably could have clipped out of Algebra 1 in college. I think I could, but I never, took college, never went to college. I don't remember a bit of it. Sorry to our math teachers this morning. I don't. I picked up a math book, tried to help my kids when they were going through Algebra. I couldn't help them. I didn't even know where to start. And I can't imagine at my age trying to go back and learn Algebra again. I'm not going to. Unless something weird happens. I, it, it could happen, I guess. They say never say never. So I can't imagine, though, trying to learn algebra at my age. But if you're a believer in Christ, let me tell you something. When you set out to learn the Word of God, you are not on your own. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. And he will show you and bring to your mind and help you to learn. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with the Word of God and said, Lord, I don't understand this. You're going to have to help me. And he does. I can tell you story after story after story of some of the amazing things that God has done and brought into my mind to help me to understand his Word. Time after time, saying to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, this is your book. You're the author. Please, please help me to understand it. He will. He will. Time is no barrier to spiritual growth. But I can tell you what is a barrier to spiritual growth. Simon Peter spelled it out for us very well. Malice, guile, hypocrisy, jealousy, evil speaking. When he called on us to lay those things aside, it's because these are the things that if we get a belly full of this, we won't have an appetite for the Word of God. I don't know what it is in you and me that loves malice, that seething anger. We're mad and we won't turn loose of it. But you turn that bottle up and start drinking it. You'll be full of malice. That's all it can do. Guile. Bitterness. 
hypocrisy, <clears throat> envy, jealousy. Mm -mm -mm -mm. You feast on that stuff all the time, and then you sit down to hear a message from the Word of God, and you know what you're going to do? <laughs> Sorry, I'm full. No thanks. You know, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Luke pronounced some woes on people. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. But, he said, woe unto them that are full. Simon Peter called us to lay aside some things because if we feast on these things all the time, we won't have an appetite for the Word of God. People can preach it, teach it. It's not going to get through. Woe unto you who are full. So, you may have been saved for a long time, but you don't really know much more about the Bible, much more about the Christian faith than you knew when you got saved. You knew Jesus, you know Jesus your Savior, God's your Father. Well, God's still your Father. He does love you. Time is no guarantee. 20, 30, 40 years from now, you may still be right where you are today. Time is no guarantee of spiritual growth. But it doesn't inhibit it either. It's not necessarily keep us from growing. You can start today and asking God to lead you in growing in your faith. But the first thing he may lead you to do is lay aside that malice. You've been mad at this person long enough. It's time to turn it loose. You've harbored this bitterness so long it's made you ugly inside. Bitterness makes you ugly. It's time to get rid of it. Turn aside from all these things and start feasting on the Word of God and you'll grow. But it all starts with knowing Jesus as your Savior. Let's stand together, please.